so we are happy and excited about all that God is doing. Amen. One of the young people asked me how my summer was going. I said, it's going great. Everything's going great. Bible quizzers did great. Had a great trip in Haiti. Amen. Had a great weekend, children's weekend. Amen. Seven got the Holy Ghost. 372 got the Holy Ghost in Haiti. Summer harvest. Amen. We can have revival in the summertime. So uh, we're looking forward to a lot of great reports as the young people are coming back from camps, already hearing good things about that. And uh, of course, we've got National Youth Congress coming up in Indianapolis where they estimate more than 40,000 young people will gather together. They believe it'll be the largest gathering of Christian young people of any denomination. So that's coming up here in July. And we're looking forward to camp meeting. A lot of good things uh, happening this summer. So God is good. Amen. You should all have an outline. We're going to be talking tonight about God's antidotes for temptation. Amen. We've been talking about temptation and how to win the war from within. And of course, we're going to talk about this war. We want to talk about it in terms of how we can win it. So I'm excited to present to you some of the things tonight that we have for you. Because I believe that God is a very solution-driven Savior. I've never heard that phrase before, but that sounds like a good title right there. Solution-driven Savior. A lot of people talk about the problems in this world, but they don't talk about the solutions. wonderful thing about the Word of God is that God has all the solutions. Amen. So we want to talk a little bit about that. Now, just by way of reviewing, I'm not sure what all they're going to uh, put up there on the uh, overhead screen for you, but if you'll remember last week, we talked about the three types of temptations, and we talked about the uh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and we talked about the lust of the flesh is the temptation to do, the lust of the eyes is the temptation to have, the pride of life is the temptation to be, lust of the flesh is the desire to indulge, lust of the eyes is the desire to increase, and the pride of life is the desire to impress. And then we talked about how that shows off in different aspects of habits that people make formed on unbridled uh, temptation, turning into lust. Then, of course, we know the Bible says lust uh, brings about sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So there's a progression uh, to um, the um, downward spiral that many people find themselves in in this life. Things don't just happen overnight. You know, have you ever thought you knew someone and all of a sudden you hear about something happening you're like how in the world did that happen but it didn't just happen overnight there's this there's this temptation and this lust and sin and then eventually death and and so how do we win this war within the key is to win it over here at the very beginning to win the battle of temptation and uh, that's the war that we're wanting to talk about is how to win the battle of temptation the lust of the flesh we see as it comes out in passion, lust of the eyes, possession, pride of life is uh, position, and uh, he's putting those up there on the, the board for you. Uh, lust of the flesh, sexual appetite, um, security, avarice, and then uh, success, ambition. These are the way that these different temptations will demonstrate themselves. Worldly philosophy is lust of the flesh is hedonism, uh, lust of the eyes is materialism. Uh, the pride of life is uh, secular humanism. And I'm not sure how much you're familiar with humanism, but humanism is a philosophy that man is really at the top, that God is really just a creation of man's imagination and his need to believe in something bigger and greater than himself. But actually man and man's thinking is, is the highest that we have here on this earth. And that's a humanistic approach. It sort of puts man at the top of the totem pole. But we all know as Christians and believers that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so secular humanism really promotes the pride of life. It pr promotes man and woman being at the, um, you know, sort of being on the throne of their own heart, so to speak. And then, of course, hedonism, you know, is just unbridled uh, acting out of lust of the flesh. Materialism is being driven to have more, 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 more. And all these things keep people in a, just sort of a, um, a cycle of destruction. Um, the cultural expressions is, if it feels good, do it. That's lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, get all you can. 
Pride of Life, look out for number one. I'm sure you've heard those expressions before, but that is really how they all uh, work out. Now, one of the things I want to do before I get into these solutions, because I believe this really ties in together, I want to talk a little bit in, about something that I believe is really the, the number one battle that's going on in our culture today, and that is uh, pornography, as it relates specifically to internet pornography. The statistics that they keep coming out with are mind-boggling. They now say that 80% of men and 20% of women have viewed internet pornography more than once, and that's in our culture. And so I would think, well, that would be different um, for people that are in the church because we're, not, we're trying not to walk after the flesh but after the spirit. But the most amazing aspect about all of these studies that they're doing, and I've read several studies this week and preparing for tonight, but one of the most amazing aspects to all of this is that the statistics are not any different for people that are in the church. That means that 80% of men in the church as a whole, now I'm not talking about our local church, but as the church in terms of Christianity as a whole in America. It doesn't lessen any. And I, I would still, and maybe this is just my own you know, optimism, but I would want to believe that it would be higher for people that are spirit-filled because when we just talk about Christianity as a whole in this world, it's not necessarily addressing those that are spirit-filled. But when I really get into the Word of God and I try to find what are the solutions to win these different battles that we have in temptations that, that are in our culture, that are in our minds, in our hearts, spirits. The number one thing that I keep finding in the Word of God and that I keep going back to is it's the Spirit of God working within us and us reacting positively to that and negatively to the impulses of the flesh. We have those two big, you know, we've talked about this before, we have those two bulldogs, as it were, whichever one we feed the most is going to win. So it still comes down to personal choice. It still comes down to man making a decision as to what they're going to put in their hearts and in their minds. When I say man, of course, I'm talking about mankind, all, all of us as human beings. So this, this issue, and I know it's kind of like the dirty little secret that our society is, is uh, dealing with. Churches don't really want to address the issue. But it is the scourge, I believe, of the 21st century in our culture. And we could get into all the physiological aspects of it, but there are a few things that I want to touch on just as it relates to showing you how the Word of God and the Spirit of God can battle um, these different temptations. So if you'll just um, be patient with me and let me speak about a few things that I think will lay the groundwork and lay the foundation for understanding how much we need God in our hearts, in our minds on a daily basis. Um, pornography essentially at its core it trains men and women to be consumers not lovers to treat sex as a commodity rather than of course we know God created sex I mean, he created male and female and of course he put the desire in us so that the earth would procreate and humanity would continue and so forth we understand all of that what pornography does is, is it creates as what the enemy does in a lot of different fashions tries to create a false intimacy so the internet is so deadly because it it presents itself as being harmless as being a victimless crime uh, it presents itself as being uh, free most of these studies that they've done they find that most people that are that are viewing internet pornography are viewing free internet pornography but let me tell you something there is no free internet pornography you're paying a heavy price anytime you view somebody in, a, in a, an inappropriate way uh, on the internet, but it offers people what appears to be um, anonymity. It, it appears to be um, innocent in terms of no one is really getting hurt, no one is a victim, there is no quote-unquote uh, infidelity or adultery. Although I would say, if you look at the Word of God, the Bible says a man looketh on another woman, he has committed adultery. So. You can make a case that adultery is if you're viewing somebody in an inappropriate way rather than your spouse, then I don't know that you can really biblically say that you're not being unfaithful. Now, I understand that there, the, perhaps the act hasn't been committed, but when I was in law school and we were studying criminal law, we, we learned that for you to have a criminal law that could be, you could be convicted of, you had to have something, of course, you know a lot of the law is based on Latin terms, but you had to have something called actus reus and mens reus. 
Mens rea is that you have an evil mindset, and actus reus is that you have an evil act. And so a lot of this starts, and of course you know certain crimes are more egregious if they can prove premeditation, um, you know, first-degree murder and so forth. If they can show that there was not just an evil act, but there was premeditation or there was thought that went into it, then that's a more egregious crime in our culture. And that principle, I think, is important because it shows that it's a combination of not just a wrongful act, but also a wrongful mindset. So you have to think in terms of what is a wrongful mindset. If I'm thinking on the wrong things, then that moves me down that path. And so I don't know that we can necessarily bifurcate and say, I can think wrong, look wrong, and as long as I don't act on it, then I'm not committing sin. I don't know that you can do that scripturally because I believe they're part and parcel to one another. But all of that goes to tell us we have to win the war when it comes to what we're putting in our, in our minds, in our hearts, and through our eyes and whatnot. So, lust and, and abuse, they have been closely related for many, many years. In fact, the Bible routinely links them. David's daughter Tamar was beautiful, and David's son, Amnon, secretly loved her from a distance. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 13, if you were to read this story, it's really sad, Amnon described his obsession and his lust as being so great that it tormented him to the point of being ill. This is now not just temptation, but lust and unbridled lust. And so he was consumed with it. And eventually he hatched a plan where um, he could get her into bed and have relations with her. And when the moment came and they were alone, he forced himself upon her and raped her, according to Scripture. Then the Scripture says that after he had his way with her, that he hated her with very great hatred. That's what verse 15 says. And threw her out of his house. Now, I want you to understand something. Pornography essentially desensitizes us to sexual violence and cruelty. I don't know if you guys remember uh, Ted Bundy, this guy that used to uh, go around. I think they finally sent him to the electric chair, but he would go around killing women and, and uh, doing all sorts of terrible things to them and then taking their life. And, you know, he went around the country, and I think there was even a couple of crimes or murders or something in Florida happened. It seemed like around a college. It's been a while back, and I can't remember all the details. But I remember, where's the University of Florida? Florida State, up in Tallahassee. But I remember that right when he got ready to go before uh, the, uh, to go to the electric chair, and he'd exhausted all of his appeals, he had James Dobson, when James Dobson was doing the uh, radio program, Focus on the Family, he had Dobson come in and interview him. And Bundy goes back and literally talks about how he got to this place where he basically had become an animal. Where, how, what happened that led to that? And in Ted Bundy's own testimony, he said that it all started with pornography. Because pornography, um, even what you know, our world would consider to be nonviolent in nature, there were, there were two psychologists, uh, one that was down at the University of Chicago, one that was from the University of Alabama, I believe, Zillman and Bryant. They did a famous study back in the 80s, and they tried to determine uh, what, what's causing uh, our culture to react the way they are. They found a lot of it went back to pornography and crimes that went back to pornography and so forth. And they said they, they made studies with different focus groups. One was what they considered to be aggressive uh, behavior that was in pornography. One was non-aggressive and so forth. And they found that, that aggression, even whether it was nonviolent or very violent, that it still was common in that it promoted aggression. So that regardless of whether or not, you know, a person was watching, you know, what they would maybe call casual porn or, or hard porn or whatever, all those different levels was still feeding this unhealthy appetite uh, that is in the, the basis part of human nature. And so with, with all of this that I believe the enemy does to try to create something that was intended to be very beautiful by God, but to distort it and to make it ugly and to tear apart relationships and homes and children to lose parents and all the craziness that comes about from just not dealing with this war within at the very beginning. Um, in this study, they, they had a, a study, the follow-up to it that happened, uh, they did in, in the year 2000. And it discovered, and they discovered in this study that they did with thousands and thousands of different individuals, 
and they studied kids that were in college and they studied uh, adults so forth but in the study that they did in the year 2000 it discovered they discovered that the presence of violence is 42 percent of online pornography promotes severe violence 42 percent of online pornography today it's not uncommon for even the youngest internet users to be exposed to graphic material in fact by the age of 18 years old 39 percent of boys and 23 percent of girls have been have seen acts of sex involving bondage before they're 18 years old and 95 to 99 percent of this is internet driven in a 2007 presentation robert Waltzniger uh, and Anna Bridges and Michelle Chang, they released the results of their study of the top 50 selling DVDs. The top 50 selling DVDs after analyzing 304 distinct scenes in these films, they found that this would just be regular movies, okay? 50 of the top selling DVDs of movies in our culture. This was in 2007, so this is 10 years ago. They found that 3,376 acts of verbal or physical aggression were in the top 50 selling DVDs. That's an act of aggression every minute and a half. About 90% of these scenes contained at least one act of aggression. Verbal aggression, such as name calling, was present in about half of the adult video scenes. 73% of instances, men were the aggressors. And when women were the aggressors, most of the time they were being aggressive to another woman. In 95% of the scenes, the person receiving the aggression reacted neutrally or positively to it. This is the message that is being fed to our world around us. Positive or what we would maybe consider healthy sexual acts such as kissing or compliments, they were found in only 10% of the scenes. So the Bible does not describe us, ladies and gentlemen, as merely being wayward. It describes us as being broken. In our humanity, if we are left to our own devices, then we will certainly spiral out of control. So we need more than just a moral boost. We have to be dead to sin. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Dead men and women do not just need a recovery, they need resurrection. So for the follower of Christ, all of us are here tonight because we're attempting to be followers of Christ. For the followers of Christ, the ultimate goal is not merely to resist temptation or to quit pornography, but it is something far richer and much more comprehensive. If merely modifying our behavior was the most important thing, then there are any number of psychological tips and tricks that one can use. But for the Christian, as it should be for all people, the goal is not merely recovering, but to be remade by God himself into the image of the perfect, perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in all points like as us, yet without sin. Now, let's go back to your chart for just a moment, because I want to go over some things that I believe makes it very clear that there is a solution. There is a solution. First of all, if we look at the category of the lust of the flesh, we see that that is a challenge to God because it challenges the sufficiency of God. You know, I don't know if you remember, but I remember we used to sing some old songs about, you know, everything that we need is in Him. And, uh, you know, He looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. I mean, we used to sing these old songs that really, I think... Uh, re-emphasized in our hearts and minds and spirits that everything we need we find in Christ. What the lust of the flesh attempts to do is to challenge the sufficiency of God. That God can meet all of our needs emotionally and physically, spiritually, socially, all of the different aspects that we have needs of in our humanity. It challenges the sufficiency of God. This is where you'll start filling in the blanks in your outline. And what God is wanting to do is to say, I can meet all of your needs. If you will turn it over to me, I can remake you. And I can, I can make you a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
But you have to believe that everything you need is in Christ. That's the first thing. And what I have found in terms of understanding how to teach uh, winning the war of temptation is that for you to find out what the antidote is or what the solution is for each one of these temptations, you have to literally do the opposite of what the temptation is telling you to do. You can't just stay in a neutral position. You know, they always say that, you know, churches are either going forward or going backward. They don't stay in a neutral position. Church is built on an incline. It's either going up or it's falling back. But it never just stays in a neutral position. Well, if that's true of the church, and I believe that it is, it's also true of all of us individually. There's no, like, leveling out place spiritually. We're either getting closer to God or we're slipping further from God. And ladies and gentlemen, that happens every day. Not to put more pressure on you, but you're in the right place tonight because you're in a place where you're hearing the Word of God, and the Word of God is also part of these solutions that we're going to look to. But sufficiency in God is recognizing every day, Lord, I recognize that you're going to meet my needs. I know you're a God that has the number of hairs on my head numbered. You know every battle that I'm facing. You know every trial. You know every temptation. And God, I'm asking you today to give me the strength, and not only to give me the strength, but provide a way of escape for every situation that I face. You've got to reaffirm in your heart and mind every day that he is sufficient, that all that we need is in him. Now, the lust of the eyes challenges the sanctity of God. The sanctity of God. There was a reason, ladies and gentlemen, why God would not allow the children of Israel for so many years to make a graven image. You know how when you read the Old Testament, there were always these challenges with the children of Israel, and they wanted to have, you know, of course, you know, the golden calf and coming out of Egypt, and you know, you can read all these different stories in the Old Testament. But, you know, all these, the Amorites and the Philistines and, you know, the Hittites and all these different ones that they, they fought back and forth, so forth, when they were not only trying to get into the promised land, but even after they were in the promised land. They always had some form of worship that involved a statue. You remember how the Philistines, you know, had that Dagon, that god that was half man and, uh, and, and half horse or whatever it was. And it stood up there, you know, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant there, and they were trying to say, you know, our God is... No, it was, it was like half man, half fish, I think. Dagon, it stood up, you know. And uh, they brought the Ark in there, and they said, okay, you know, our God's bigger than your God, you know, and so forth. And, of course, the Bible says that the thing fell over on, the, on its face in front of the Ark, and its head and its arms fell off. I think that was God just saying, nothing has power before me. He's all-powerful with or without you and me. He, don't, he doesn't need us. He's still going to be God all by himself. You know, somebody says, well, you know, I, I, I believe God and, and uh, you know, that settles it and so forth, you know, that God is God. Well, God is, that's great that we believe God, but that doesn't settle it. God is God and that's settled whether or not you or I believe it or don't believe it. He's not, he's not God based upon whether or not you or I believe or whether or not you or I follow his word. He's going to be God. He can be God all by himself. But in the Old Testament, there were always these, this desire to create an image. And, 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 and the Lord would never allow them to do that. Now, we believe strongly, even if you go back and you look at the pattern of the Ark of the Covenant, you look at the pattern of the tabernacle as it went around the wilderness, Holy of Holies and so forth, all the outer court, and the laver of water and the altar of incense. And if you go through that whole pattern, you can see where that's a type of what God was going to do in the New Testament through the plan of salvation. Of course, the labor of water was baptism. The altar of sacrifice was repentance. The Holy of Holies, the presence of God, the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And then you had the table of showbread, which is the word. And you had the altar of incense, which was prayer. So there's a, there's a lot of typology when you study the tabernacle in the Old Testament. But if you really look at why I believe God would not allow man to create an image of God is that God had already created that image, and we knew that was going to be Jesus Christ, and there was not to be anything to preempt that. But above and beyond that, I believe that God, as the creator of all of us, knew that it would be the temptation of man to focus on the image rather than on the essence of God. To focus on the image, because you've got to understand, if anybody understands our human nature, it's God, he created us, he designed us. And so that appetite of our eyes is something that God would, I mean, oftentimes you'll see in the Old Testament where major battles were lost or won based upon whether or not they fell 
into this temptation to create an image. And so when you have this lust of your eyes and you're, you're putting the other images before you and you are allowing those things to become your gods, that challenges the sanctity of God. Because for us to really understand the sanctity or the, the holiness of God is to understand that we don't have to have any artificial props for us to understand how beautiful the presence of God is, how beautiful the things of God are. We don't have to have natural vision to be able to create a false atmosphere. We should be able to see that and know that in our spirits and in our hearts. And so I believe not allowing these other things to take our, our flesh and move it in the wrong direction. When we come to the presence of God and we feel His presence and we recognize the beauty of that, that's part of how we feed our spirit to understand the sanctity or the holiness of God. Um, this is also, and I, I, you know, there's another whole Bible study here, but this is also why when you become a mature Christian, you should understand that there are certain responsibilities that go with that. The way you dress and different ways that you accent your body. You've got to understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And so when we say, hey, there's a reason why there's principles in the Bible about way men should dress and the way women should dress and a distinction of the gender. A lot of people thought that was ridiculous. Why does it matter, you know, that there's a distinction of the gender? Well, nowadays you can see in our culture how important it is to have a distinction of the genders because there's this gender bending that's going on in our culture today. So all of these biblical principles are there, folks, because human nature has been around a long time. And so whatever it is in our flesh that's drawing us to these things, we have to back up from it and say, wait a second, I have to find my sufficiency, the sanctity of understanding the holiness of God demonstrated through us by understanding the responsibility of not only what we watch, what we look at, what we ingest through our eyes, but also the way we present ourselves, okay? Now, let's look at the pride of life, type three, the pride of life. This challenges the sovereignty of God. You see, when... When you really trust God, it forces you in your humanity to say, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the solutions. But I know one who does, and his name is Jesus. But when you and I say, you know what, God, I, you, you're taking a long time working. Now, maybe we don't actually say this, but our actions indicate that this is our thought process. When we say, you know, um, I, I thought God would have moved by now, and I thought God would have, you know, given me... Uh, a spouse by now and and uh, he hasn't done it and you know I've been doing right and living right and acting right and going to camps and going to conferences and you know I go to church pay my tithes sing on the in the choir and all that and it's just not happening fast enough so I think I'm gonna go out here as the Bible describes in the Old Testament and go and find me a wife among the Philistines <laughs> that's that's the issue that Samson had with his parents and it's like I don't trust that God is going to hear my prayer, so I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And that was just an example. But that principle applies in a lot of areas of life. And so what you have to do is you have to back up and say, wait a second, I trust God. It may not happen today, it may not happen tomorrow, but God understands not just what I need, but he also understands the right timing. And though I think I'm ready for it, I may not be ready for it. You won't believe this, but every one of you that are sitting in here tonight, God has got an enormous financial blessing that he's wanting to give every one of you. But he's trying to figure out whether or not he can trust you. So there's all these little tests that happens. What did you do with that? What did you do with that? What did you do with that? Because God is limitless in his riches and supply. He's God. So you say, well, God, I'm ready. You can trust me. <laughs> I've heard people say, you know, Pastor, I, I struggle paying tithes, but boy, if I win that lottery, if I win a million dollars, boy, I'm going to pay tithes on it. No, you're not. Because you know what the Bible says? If you can't run with the footman, how are you going to run with the horseman? If you can't pay a dollar on $10, how are you going to pay on a million dollars? $100,000? You know, there's a lot of times I've had the opportunity to work with people in, um, in, in legal actions, and they always say, you know, you know I, I don't really care about the money. Anytime people say they don't care about the money, that means they care about the money. You know, I really don't care about the money. I just want my, my doctor bills to be paid, you know, and my property to be replaced, you know, and all that. And so, you know, the work goes on, and then it's finally the insurance company pays up. 
And they're like, how come the lawyers are getting 33%? I'm like, I thought you didn't care about the money. It's amazing how that changes <laughs> when the check's coming, you know. It's, uh, it changes everything. It's amazing how money changes people. Now, I know nobody's wanting to say amen right now, but I can preach in a library, so you don't have to say anything. Human nature is human nature. And it's like, well, God, you can trust me. Can he? Well, how, let me tell you how God tests you. He tests you with small amounts. If he can trust you with that, he'll gradually bring. You wouldn't believe what God is wanting to bless you with. Your home, your family, your children. You wouldn't believe what God is wanting to do. But he wants to know, can he trust us? And all of that comes to the sovereignty of God. For you and I to say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Every time you pray that, every time you act that out in the decision-making you're saying, I trust your sovereignty, God. Okay? Now, here's what God's antidotes give us. And you've got to look at 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And I'm going to do these real quick because I've got a bunch of other stuff I've got to give you. And I've got 15 minutes to do it in. Are you ready? Because we're going to go quick. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. We know charity is love, right? Faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity, which is love. So, there's three things that God gives us that are antidotes to these three temptations. They're faith, hope, and love. Now, here's how it works. Lust of the flesh is all about getting, right? Well, what does love do? Love is, is giving, right? 1 Corinthians talks about this. If you go into more detail, 1 Corinthians 13. Lust is getting, and love is giving. You know, someone says, oh, I'm really in love. You may just be in lust. Because lust is all about getting, consuming, receiving. But love is about giving. No greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Talking about Jesus laying down his life for us at Calvary. So love is, is giving. When, when you really love someone or you love God, you, you, you don't serve God based upon what you can get from him. Because that's not real love. To really be in a relationship with God is to say, Lord, how can I bless you this week? What can I do to honor your name today? That's what real love is. It's not about, well, God, can you pay my light bill? And God, can you bless? God, can you take care of this situation? God, can you heal my headache? There's so many people that serve God like he's a big spiritual Santa Claus that's supposed to give them a, a wish. God wants, do you love him? Are you willing to give him, to worship him, to bless his name? That's really how you battle the lust of the flesh is find ways to express your love for God in concrete actions, okay? Now, the thing about lust of the eyes is hope because hope stores up for heaven. The lust of the eyes is all about, I got to get this, I got to get this now, I got to get, I got to take care of myself, I got to make sure, you know, I've got all this security and so forth. But what does hope do? Hope says, you know what? It's all in God's hands. Amen. I'm going to do the best I can according to the principles of God's word. And then whenever it's all said and done, I'm going to have to trust that God, hallelujah, has got a place prepared for us and everything's going to work out and God's going to take care. It doesn't mean that we're just senseless and we're not prudent with our own, you know, fiscal planning and responsibilities. But what it does say is we do all we can. And then what we can't do, we put our trust and our hope in God. And so that's what hope does is it challenges the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life is faith. Faith depends on God. Faith challenges the pride of life. You, to really have great faith, you have to humble yourself. You know that centurion that came to Jesus said, I'm not worthy that you'd even come into my house. You notice how humility prefaced Jesus saying, I've not seen such great faith. Because you can't have great faith without having humility. Because great faith is predicated upon you saying, I can't do this on my own. God, if you don't help me today, I'm not going to make you. Great faith is, is humbling yourself and not having all these spiritual parachutes where, you know, I'd like for God to answer, but if he doesn't, then I can always do this. That, that's not great. Great faith is putting it all out there and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. Whenever that man from, because I refer to that because that's when Jesus said great faith. When, when the Lord said, I'm not seeing so great faith, not in all of Israel, he was a centurion. And he had a revelation that faith was, was not based on touch and it wasn't um, based on uh, 
vicinity. It was based on authority. And so when he said, if you would speak the word only, my servant would be made whole. He was recognizing that his dependence on God, as he was, of course, in the form of Jesus, that dependence on that healer speaking the word was him saying that I am under authority, so I recognize how authority works. He was saying that he, as a Roman centurion, was under the authority of Jesus as it related to his servant being healed. You see, folks, you don't have great faith unless you're willing to humble yourself. That's why if you're dealing with pride, you counter it with faith. Because faith will force you to reduce your pride to the place of dependence on him. Okay, now let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now there's three things that are there. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now look how these are the answers to these three different temptations. First of all, deny yourself. That's how you counter lust of the flesh. The flesh wants one. You know, there's times that, you know, how many of you here have kids? I would say that's the majority. You know, there, nobody has to teach a kid to want. They just want from day one. And as soon as they learn how to verbalize it, it becomes more. Um, going into a store, you know, it doesn't matter where it is. They can always find something they want. And um, I, I remember trying to be intentional. And it's hard because you love your kids and you want to give them everything. But I can remember trying to be intentional and saying, no, you don't really need that. Oh, but daddy, you know, no, 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 no. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't really need. And the reason is not necessarily that I didn't want to get it for them or not necessarily that I couldn't afford to get it for them. But it's a good thing for them to learn that you can't have everything you want. Because denying yourself is a part of learning how to battle this temptation, which is the lust of the flesh. If you give your flesh everything that it wants, guess what? The appetite gets greater. It doesn't get less. It expands. You know, it's like the old saying about feeding an alligator. If you keep feeding an alligator, guess what? The alligator keeps looking for food and coming to you, and if you don't have food one day, he eats you. The appetite doesn't stop. It grows bigger. Sin is the same way. There's no leveling off place with sin where the enemy just says, okay, you've done enough. I'll leave you alone now. He's not going to stop until you're dead and in the grave. So you have to deny yourself. Okay? That's part of what Jesus said was the answer. Then follow me. Let's talk about that as it relates to the lust of the eyes. Because the eyes, of course, you know, they're the video cameras. They're the ones that are giving us passages. We navigate this world, natural world, natural beings in this world. And our eyes kind of guide us and direct us. But a lot of times you have to see through spiritual eyes and not natural eyes. There's a lot of times your natural eyes can't see a solution. But you know what? You trust the word of God and the principles of God's word. You say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it, but I know you're going to do it. And so I'm going to just walk by faith and not by sight. And if you'll do that and follow him as opposed to following what you think is right. There's times in your life when you'll say, I don't see how the Bible applies to me in this situation. It doesn't make sense. But if you'll follow the word of God and the principles of God's word, it will help you to not give in to the lust of the eyes. Now, the pride of, the li pride of life is take up your cross. You, you, I mean, you can't have no arrogance taking up a cross. Taking up a cross. Of course, I know we know that it relates to us figuratively in terms of understanding that when we walk with God, that it's, it's a life of sacrifice, and yet it's a life of great joy. <laughs> That's the paradox of the whole thing. It's a life of sacrifice, but yet it's a life of abundance. It's a life of, of uh, sorrow. It's also a life of joy. But ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing like saying, Lord, I'm not going to allow myself to just live by my own inclinations, my own intentions. 
But I'm, I'm going to take up that cross. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take up the burden, as it were. And I, I, don't, I don't even know, in my personal opinion, how much of a burden it is because the reward is so great. But let's say the reward is delayed and we simply live a life of sacrifice according to biblical principles. We say no to the things we're supposed to say no to. We have the right disciplines in our life. We have the right friends around us. If you live a life that way, it may appear, and, and I'm sure there'll be times when you feel like you're carrying a cross, but ladies and gentlemen, in the end, you have the victory of the resurrection. And that's really no sacrifice at all in the big scheme of things. All right? So here's what we know as we work through all of these different solutions. That for you and I to understand how to deal with the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, we have to understand that all of these things that give us the solutions are all the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what I want to go over with you in the next couple of minutes. Just as sure as pornography stirs up lustful cravings in us, the Holy Ghost is a source of new holy craving. It's the source of a new holy craving. This is why when you really get into the Word of God, you'll understand that everything that the enemy tries to do to create unnatural desire or to exploit some sort of un ungodlike lust in our flesh that God does the exact opposite for the right purpose and this is what I want to show you because Galatians 5 says we who have the Holy Spirit have the desires of the Spirit the desires of the Spirit Galatians 5 16 says this I say then walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh that's what the King James Version says walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here's what that verse in verse 17 says in the New International Version. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. That's the New International Version. I kind of like that translation right there. So God promises that when we keep in step with the Spirit, the lust of the flesh that lead to sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality will not have their way in us. Here's what it goes on to say in verse 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We can become new men and women from the inside out. So what does it mean to keep in step with God and to walk in the Spirit? That sounds great, but let's see if we can break that down a little bit and kind of get our arms around it. First of all, I believe that it means that we must walk in accountability. We must walk. For you and I to walk in the Spirit is to walk with accountability. Now, I know we live in a culture where people don't want accountability, but accountability is what allows us to walk in the Spirit. Accountability is where we can share our darkest secrets and be reminded of our, higher, our highest, higher calling, and that is to be worshipers of Christ. To walk in the Spirit, we must confess our sins to each other, pray for each other, stir up one another to live according to our true identity. When Paul says that we are to walk in the Spirit, he's writing to a church community, not just to random individuals that are going to be reading his letter in their private corners. But keeping in step with the Spirit of God is a community activity, something that we do together. In other words, one of the ways that we keep in step with the Spirit is by keeping in step with one another. We must live lifestyles of encouragement and accountability. And we have to see that we're all part of this building fitly, the Bible says, framed together. We're not to serve God, all of us, in our own silos. And just kind of all come together and still be planets in our own galaxy spinning around. But we are to strengthen one another and to help one another. The Spirit does not merely indwell in individual Christians. It indwells the church corporately as his temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16. This is what it says. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's a corporate aspect. We understand our bodies are temples, but we also know that his church is the temple of God. So walking in the power of the Spirit means we must depend on how the Spirit empowers each of us and all of us to help one another. Nothing says that the power of sin is able to conquer us if we confess. James says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, James 5.16. So in confessing our sins to God, we are, are promised forgiveness. In confessing sins to others, we are made whole. Sin must be habitually exposed to the light of confession. This is called accountability. Being honest with another trusted believer about our temptations, sins, and the state of our heart. Most of all, our spouse. Most of all, our spouse. I believe strongly that we should have accountability partners. We must have accountability partners. We must be accountable one to another. It is a safety net for all of us. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after eating of the forbidden fruit, our knee-jerk reaction is to go hide, to hide from God and to hide from one another. That's our humanity. But accountability is the willing to habitually and to regularly allow others access to your heart, your motives, your secret desires, your dark thoughts, and of course, your sinful actions. You know why? Because sin is like a bunch of roaches. They run rampant in the dark, but as soon as you shine a light on them, they all run for the corners or wherever they can do to get out of that. It's unbelievable. So, I want you to write this down. www.covenanteyes.com www.covenanteyes.com Covenant Eyes is a group. In fact, I'm going to, um, I probably will have one of the representatives come over and um, speak to our church as a whole. I'm, I'm possibly even going to be interviewing him and uh, putting it on our next Home Friendship Group video. Because I'm determined that we live righteous, holy lives and not be as the Pharisees that look good on the outside and inside were full of dead men's bones. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the will of God. So Covenant Eyes is a program where you can put on every device, and I'm going to put it on my house, on every kid's cell phone and every iPad and computers and laptops. And it is a program. It don't matter if you've got iPhones, Apple, or if you've got, you know, uh, Androids or whatever all the different devices are. Covenant Eyes works on all of it. And what it does is it not only filters out, but it, it establishes a covenant agreement with someone that you choose and it allows that person to see everything that you access on the internet. Oh my, Pastor, I could never do that. I, how much do we really want to be accountable to one another? And here's what I'm wanting to do. I'm wanting to create a community in our church where all of us recognize the extreme danger that we're all facing. And that we have actual tools that are at our disposal that we can put in place to protect ourselves many times from ourselves and this this program i've looked it all through i've tried to figure out how we can do it i think it's an awesome thing if we'd all agree to do it because then we don't have to have some sort of shame that goes with one person putting it on their device like they're an adult and you know they got somebody's gonna have to be looking over their eye if we all do it together because this is how I'm going to sell it to my family and my kids, too. We're going to all do it. Every one of you on your iPad, your iPhone, we're all going to have covenant eyes. And we're all going to be accountable one to another. I mean, that's how I'm going to do it with my family. But I'm going to encourage the church, and we're going to open this up, and I'm going to have the representatives come, and we're going to present this to all of us. Because I believe it's the will of God for us to be able to say, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And there's all different kinds of, there's even, in Covenant Eyes, there's even a panic button. That if you feel yourself, if you're on a laptop working and you feel yourself getting tempted, you can hit a panic button. And literally, Covenant Eyes will shut down all of your access to anything on the internet. Until you call them back up and you get it turned back on when you feel like you're back in a healthy place. Ladies and gentlemen, 
This is part of the society that we're in. And this is part of the humanity that each one of us are facing. But together with God's help, walking in the power of the Holy Ghost. I don't have time to go on these other things, but let me just touch on it and then I'll, I'll go into more detail next Wednesday. Is that okay? Because my time's gone for today. The next thing that we have to do is that we have to internalize Scripture. We have to not only be accountable one to another, but we have to internalize Scripture. I'll go into more details about how we do that. Uh, the third thing is that we have to walk in pure pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, God created pleasure. But there's a way to walk in pure pleasure that will keep us from falling into impure pleasure. All right? Now, maybe we don't want to talk about that because we're scared of the word pleasure. But I can show you where all that is in the Bible, okay? So you don't have to freak out about it. All right, here's number four. We must stir up the hope. Stir up the hope that Scripture gives us. The enemy is in the business of convincing everybody that there's no hope. That's ultimately what drives suicide, is the enemy convinces people there's no way out. There's no hope. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to stir up hope, all right? And then we're going to get into some more things as we go forward. I'll explain all those in more detail. But what I'm convinced is, ladies and gentlemen, is that we can win the war within. We're going to have to be smart. We're going to have to recognize that we do need to depend on God and one another and not try to just... One of the biggest things that the enemy uses, we can see it comes under the pride of life, but it's to convince people they don't need any help, that they can handle it. There's a lot of people you can look throughout Scripture that thought they could handle it, and they got in trouble. Great men of God and women of God. So I believe through some practical tools that we can equip ourselves with more revelation in scripture we can become what god desires all of us to be why don't we stand to our feet thank you for allowing me to go a few minutes over uh tonight but i believe that god's going to be with us in this why don't we just lift our hands right now and just say god let us be vessels of honor help us to be instruments of praise we recognize lord the frailty of our flesh we recognize god that we are nothing without you but we know, Lord, that you have given us the solutions, the tools. You've given us the antidotes. You've given us, Lord, a way out, a way of escape. And, Lord, help us to have the wisdom to take those things and put them in our lives and allow ourselves to be strengthened by your word, by your spirit, by these fruits of the spirit that you have desired to put in our hearts to make us men and women of Christ. Be with us, Lord. I pray your protection upon all of our children, our families, and our homes. I pray that no weapon formed against us would prosper, but that there would be a protection, a wall, a wall of an angelic host that's around families and homes in this church in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.